The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's Monday. Uh, that's good news, by the way. And you're watching Scorebox. That's also good news with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Uh, strapped for cash, Chinese property developer Country Garden suspends bond trading as an escalating debt crisis sends shares to a record low and sends the broader equity market into the red. Goldman Sachs now eyeing a Fed rate cut in the second quarter next year, whilst earnings season turns to the big box retailers for clues on the state of the US consumer and, of course, the broader economy. Litigation mounts at UBS as Credit Suisse retail investors prepare to lodge a fresh legal claim against the Swiss lenders rushed rescue as soon as today. And SoftBank is reportedly in talks to buy Vision Fund's 25% stake in chip design company Arm ahead of its NASDAQ listing next month. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well. Oh, it's, it's at this point, back. I would ask you how you've been, how the last couple of weeks <laughs> have been, but I already know that, and the viewers already know that, because if they follow you on Twitter, we, we had a wonderful lunch on Friday with an old colleague of mine, I forget his name, uh, and uh, we, we, sh- we shot the breeze about yeah. the markets already, so we've done that. Good we, old-fashioned uh, squawk we had on Friday, just without any viewers. <laughs> well, yeah, but it was a lovely sunny day in London. Um, look, and that's the, a rarity. the same old risks... I left two weeks ago are still there and they're still there in spades and the, and the questions are being raised you know have, have the the great growth stocks gone too far are there real concerns about recession indicators in the US uh, inflation looks very tame although the PPI uh, the producer price data at the tail end of last week a little bit of a hiccup for the markets as well giving back a little bit of ground there same old concerns over China I noticed though the oil demand uh, from the IEA on Friday was saying hey we, we are really spiking on this oil demand some of the great Levels ever, which I find that hard to tally with some of the other evidence. Yeah, I don't think much changed in terms of the bad data out of China, as you point out, that continued to roll through in your absence, but also on the markets that we're not going to have a hard landing. That that view that uh, we're going to skirt around a recession, I think that uh, was uh, quite instrumental the last couple of weeks. But for me, over the weekend, it was really the attention that was uh, brought to bear on the mounting debts in the United States and just whether there's an ability to pay off those debts now uh, with the, the lack of ability to, to tap what has been very free, easy credit conditions for so long to put the finances in order. I think the market was finance, was focused on those finances uh, very much over the weekend. Yeah, but the, I, I think you're referring to also a piece that I had a look at as well over the weekend the from Wall Spencer Jacob, uh, who was writing in the Wall Street Journal. And he's basically gone down an, uh, a, a rabbit hole that I've gone down many times over the years and and I would argue that whilst I completely agree with him about the concerns about the size of the US debt load going forward that is still a medium to longer term concern and I think the market very often can ignore those medium term 
uh, factors and, and, and concentrate on the here and now. But I agree with him and, and with you that it's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, and I would recommend anyone reading that Wall Street Journal. And the story goes, the scary math behind the world's safest assets. You've got some details. Yeah, just a little bit here that uh, according to the Congressional Budget Office and those updates that it uh, actually leads to the market, that US debt held by the public will surpass GDP, gross domestic product this fiscal year. So GDP this year and that the interest on that debt will equal about three quarters of discretionary non-defence spending. So effectively uh, mounting costs for the government at this stage, which means very tight spending uh, ability by the government going into a presidential election campaign. Not this government. And not the next one either. That's the point, isn't yeah. it? It's like this is, this is a typical politician's problem for the next guy in the White House or the next lady in the White House. But you know, we, we, we wait for that latter scenario to play out at some stage. Yes, but the point that was mentioned too, don't forget, has not been an easy couple of years. We've had COVID to fight. So there's True. been a huge money, money that's been thrown at vaccines and rescue efforts here. And then, of course, we've had a, a banking crisis that's required uh, some form of intervention too. And I think if you go into these types of events challenged, and I mentioned and the war, of course, uh, what is the ability to, to ramp up spending if a crisis hits? Yeah, yes. Uh, we could do, we'll do this one up. The only thing I will say is there are countries out there that do pretty well on maintaining debt to GDP stunningly in excess of 100%. And I know that's the key figure that they're talking about in that article there as well. Uh, the Japanese, the Italians, a whole host of European nations as well. A lot of nations seem to do that quite well for a long time. But can the Chinese as well? Because there are problems uh, mounting. Let's have a look at the Asian indices, which are down across the board, as you can see. The Hang Seng giving up 2.4%. The Shanghai Composite giving up a percent. And once again, debt concerns around uh, China's uh, property development market uh, weighing, this time the largest property developer in China, weighing on the broader market. Emily Tan joins us now. And Emily, you have been covering this for so long and our viewers have been looking at this in various manifestations for so long. Why is this leg of the story that much more interesting for our viewers compared with some of the other legs and other property companies that have had to go for support elsewhere? Well, you know what? Uh, it, it's taken so long. I, I mean, this is something that we've been watching since Evergrande uh, when that unfolded and the uh, dominoes are falling. Uh, what was it two years ago? And now we're hearing about Country Garden uh, having to suspend trading in 11 of its onshore bonds, uh, saying that resumption is going to be determined at a later date. Uh, then there is, of course, the concerns about whether or not they're going to be having to prepare a debt restructuring. Uh, this is something that Evergrande is working on and still working through the courts and whether or not the creditors will accept the proposals that are being put before them. Uh, it's you know been a long time running and it's uh, now uh, taking place uh, or starting to unfold at Country Garden. So we're seeing uh, shares trade at record lows, uh, down more than 16% in resumed trade in the afternoon session. This is the biggest loser on the Hang Seng Index in terms of the 80 components that are traded. Country Garden as well as its uh, property services company, both of them being blue, blue chip companies. So uh, they've uh, suspended the trading in their onshore bonds, uh, there is the de debt restructuring that uh, hangs over the company. And then this is adding to concerns about the property sector, which Beijing has uh, really put very little in terms of stronger support that uh, many had been hoping for. Uh, as we watch uh, the numerous companies that are suspended from trade in the Hong Kong market pending the release of their full year results. We just got Evergrande about a week and a half ago uh, and then we're still waiting on the resumption of trade for those uh, big property developers and 
Country Garden, before I move on, warned of a loss for the first half of $7.6 billion and liabilities totaling $194 billion. Uh, that would be compared to about $340 over at Evergrande. Uh, we showed you a briefly the, uh, just a quick shot of some of the heavyweight stocks. It is the tech plays that are weighing on the market here today. The likes of Alibaba and Meituan, both pushing losses of more than 3%. Alibaba close to 4%. Uh, this, as we had a big run-up in Alibaba shares on Friday with the help of its uh, revenues, which were, were a beat. Uh, I should point out that Country Garden shares, which I didn't mention earlier, uh, the shares today seeing steep losses, but in the last week alone, down more than 42%. Uh, so there is a lot of downside in the uh, stocks that are coming through today uh, in the Hong Kong market. And of course, it's just the start of the week. We've got uh, lots of data coming through tomorrow in the form of the uh, the monthly activity indicators, the high frequency data, the retail, industrial production, as well as fixed asset investment, which will give us another look at how the Chinese economy is doing tomorrow. Back to you guys in London. Absolutely love your work as ever, Emily. Thank you very much indeed for kicking us off with a look at the Asian markets. Right. Uh, as I mentioned in the heads, Goldman Sachs says it expects the Federal Reserve to start reducing rates by June of next year. Do you remember the days when it was all the mainstream idea on the Fed funds futures rate that we've already been cutting by now. Anyway, there you go. Uh, and uh, Goldman's adds that so they will continue uh, at a pace uh, of around 125 basis point cut per quarter. In its latest note, the bank said the Fed will be driven next year by a desire to, quote, normalize the funds rate from a restrictive level once inflation is closer to target, adding it expects the Fed funds futures rate to stabilize at three to three and a quarter percent. Goldman's call is largely in line with the Fed funds futures rate, the aforementioned, which are pricing in a 69 percent chance of a cut by May. Uh, and 85% by June. But as we've seen previously over this cycle, the Fed Fund's futures rate is about as good an indicator uh, as a soggy biscuit. Well, let's uh, move on to the market. Speaking of soggy biscuits, it was uh, really that type of market last week. We saw red piling back onto some of the major boards again for the trading week. And in session Friday, only modestly downbeat, as you can see, for the S&P. A little bit more being stripped away from the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy index down seven-tenths of a percent. It was only just contained really around the Dow. Those patches of green for the trading day, up about a third of a percent. And for the trading week, where it managed to eke out six-tenths of a percent. Four positive week in five. Uh, United Health won the big movers in that Friday trade. But if you look at what was performing over the course of the trading week, it was uh, some of those big energy plays at a sector level. It was uh, the story Friday, which is why you had the Dow out in front. And it was the course to trade over the week where energy was back in front. But technology faded. That was the real laggard on the markets for the trading week. But uh, plenty of uh, concerns around the Treasury market and what interest rates could still do from here. That higher for longer scenario. This is how the Treasury markets uh, were shaped up 4.90 so uh, we've still got this inverted yield curve 4.16 at the long end but you can see I uh, just uh, shied by 10 points off that 5% handle and uh, look at the dollar and uh, how it's been uh, performing now in this morning session sterling euro on the back foot uh, dollar is king versus those trades we're down roughly about a tenth of a percent on some of the trades on this side of the world dollar peeling back though versus the safe haven Japanese yen which uh, is somewhat supported at this point and dollar firmer versus yuan so mostly a 
Greenback story this morning. To WTI, Brent and Gold uh, mentioned the support for energy stocks last week. Well, on the spot prices, we are falling today. Brent and WTI both down more than 1% as we kick off the brand new trading week. A safe haven trade of gold doesn't really have it either. You can see some slippage there. We're holding the 1911 mark at this point, but we're down a fraction morning trade. Let's get some thoughts on this market. Uma Moriarty joins us now, the Senior Investment Strategist from Centre Square Investment Management. Uma, thank you very much for joining us today. Very conflicting signals out there. We've got a market that is saying, look, we're not going to hit recession. We're going to sidestep that because we've got this unemployment rate that continues to hover around five-decade lows. And uh, at the same time, we've still got uh, the yield curve inverted. So what is it? Are we going to have some form of a recession hitting or are we going to neatly step around uh, that scenario. Thanks for having me. You know, we've been thinking about these types of indicators now, these forward-looking indicators for a very long time. This seems like it has been the most widely anticipated recession of, of all time. We, we tend to see in prior cycles that you'll see a lot of these economic data points feel somewhat okay right before we get into a recession. At Center Square here, we're real estate investors. We're seeing some real-time kind of information from areas like hotels, self-storage, areas that have shorter lease terms where you can kind of sense what the consumer is doing. And we're seeing that pull back pretty meaningfully in the very short period of time over the last month or two months or so. And so we're starting to see some early indications that the consumer is pulling back. And that's what we really need in terms of seeing that capital R recession, right? We've been seeing this kind of rolling recession go through the economy here in the US, which started with tech, you saw it in housing, you saw it in the credit markets. We're starting to see indications of that now coming to the consumer as well. Uma, what do you make of the sentiment then? Because even with the earnings season, this is a fairly big event risk for stocks. And when we've had positive surprises, we're not seeing a strong reaction. Uh, Wall Street Journal had this terrific article saying that effectively companies that have beat expectations have seen about a 0.5% rise on average in the trading session following that report versus the 10-year average of 1.6%. So some, some fading reaction to even positive surprises here. What does that say about sentiment? You know, at this point, what we've seen so far this year out of equities broadly, and a lot of that really driven by tech, has been an earnings multiple expansion, right? That expansion multiples has been an, an because of somewhat of the exuberance of more of that soft landing rather than a recession, seeing some sort of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of topping rates. And so a lot of that exuberance is really building into the market. Think about artificial intelligence, right? Kind of the buzzword of this earnings season. A lot of those things have driven sentiment very high so far this year. And so the expectations are very high, right? So you've set the bar pretty high in terms of what you're expecting out of these companies that have seen that multiple expansion this year. Yeah, Uma, and, and I concur with a lot of what you're saying, of course, and about this, this cognitive dissonance about uh, whether there is going to be some form of recession in the markets or not. But, but, but the truth of the matter is, and, and you know this way better than I do, is that most US stocks aren't actually particularly expensive. It doesn't make them necessarily cheap, but actually the overall PEs and the overall CAPE levels, they're just flattered by the Magnificent Seven or, or Top Ten or whatever you want to call them. Uh, some of those high profile names like you just mentioned in AI as well. So actually, is the majority of the US stock market not looking expensive, albeit not particularly cheap? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in terms of where we think opportunities really exist out there across the equity space, 
Like I mentioned, we're real estate investors at Center Square. The REIT market in the US is a is a piece of the equity market that screens actually very cheap, especially in comparison to the S&P 500. If we think about the multiple relationship between the S&P 500 and REITs across the US, REITs are trading at a fairly deep discount that we've only really seen a couple times in the last two decades, which really tends to end up leading to some sort of a reversion from a performance perspective. And especially as we start to see and expect kind of the, the end of the Fed rate hiking cycle, we've done some research to really look at the last four cycles where the Fed has stopped raising rates. REITs tend to outperform equities in a pretty meaningful way. And that outperformance is a function of how discounted REITs are at that time. And so REITs currently as cheap as they are compared to the equity market Screen has a really interesting opportunity for investors here today. I think that is fascinating. And look, you've already preempted my question by saying we've done our research. You've looked at those previous cycles of when the Fed uh, has to pivot on interest rates as well. But, but there's something that feels very tough, doesn't it, about owning or going into the real estate market uh, at this stage of the cycle when you do think, as you've said previously, that, that perhaps there is going to be some form of recession happening. The Fed's going to have to respond. But going into property markets at the start of that recession, you're, you're saying you've done your research and that works, though, yeah? And I think part of that is really a function of if you think about what has happened across the real estate market in the equity space over the last year and a half to two years, as we've seen this higher rate cycle go through, we've seen that priced into the real estate market pretty meaningfully across the listed real estate space. And so you have valuations at this point that are fairly de-risked especially from the yield expansion perspective, right? So that's already been priced in. And also from a recessionary perspective, the multiple expansion that I mentioned has happened across the equity market because of some of that exuberance of that soft landing. You haven't seen that same level of multiple expansion across the real estate market in the listed equity space. There are also a lot of exposures, I would say, to some very strong secular demand drivers that should continue to drive cash flows in real estate, right? Think about things like data centers, So all of the hype around artificial intelligence, all of that computing power is being done in data centers. Data centers are real estate plays. Other things like, you know, affordable housing, which is a crisis across the, across the world in the real estate space, the aging population that we're seeing across the world, you have senior housing facilities or even, you know, lab science space where you're developing new treatments. All of those things are housed within that real estate market that you can get exposure to that are fairly, I would say, you know, not as exposed to economic ups and downs because they are so much more secular in nature. Uma, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you staying up for us on a Sunday night, your time to speak with us. Uma Moriarty, who is a senior investment strategist at Centre Square Investment Management. I, I took a lot from that uh, and I thought she's fantastic, by the yeah. way. And if you're listening, Uma, thank you for that. But actually, what she's done is done her look... What, her work on looking at one sector, you think, oh, I wouldn't touch that for barge pole at this stage of the cycle. You know, mm. if there's going to be a recession, US companies pulling back, the consumer pulling back, don't touch REITs. Mm. And actually, she said, no, they're, they're discounted. Fascinating. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I think that was one of the overhangs, too, for when the banks reported they were concerned about the sector. But speaking of earnings season, now we are pretty much through it, but it's a still busy one when it comes to retail numbers this week stateside. Investors will look for insights into the health of the US consumer. We've got Home Depot kicking things off on Tuesday. And uh, Target Walmart following later in the week, of course, Cisco numbers up there. And don't forget, that was a big mover for the NASDAQ on the Friday session. 
Um, right, let us move on. Coming up on the show, plenty happening, including, look at this, the drought now. The concerns globally about weather patterns changing. When drought has now hit the Panama Canal, which has prompted a build-up of ships through one of the world's absolutely pivotal trade routes. Uh, we'll bring you more on that this hour. And later in the show, uh, we're going to focus on grain prices. This after a Russian warship fired warning shots on a cargo ship in the Black Sea. And coming up after this break, we're going to speak to the CEO of Bilfinger. The German engineering giant has reported a 6% jump in second quarter revenue. Uh, that interview with Thomas Schulz uh, coming up as a first on CNBC after this break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, welcome back. Billfinger has posted a 6% rise in second quarter of revenue with gross margins jumping over 10%. The German Industrial Services Group said it saw demand growing in its energy transition solutions. Always a pleasure speaking to Thomas Schulz, CEO of Billfinger, who joins us now. Thomas, lovely to see you, sir. Look, um, that's great. And, and, the, and I saw the, uh, the, the, the bookings ratio looks pretty strong as well. Margins increasing as well. Um, but there are problems out there and on, on, on kind of the, the, the efficiency programs and on the transformation going on in the US, but you feel you're getting through those issues. Yeah, definitely. We have a good market around us and we progress quite good and quite well with our strategy. A big, big thank you to all my colleagues around the world. Um, in terms of those parts of the business that we talk about doing really well, the engineering and maintenance uh, out of Europe, technology segments as well, uh, what is the growth driver in terms of the, the parts of the industrial process that people are getting excited about and actually spending money on in Europe, which is quite fascinating? It's two things. One is the demand for efficiency improvement, and the other one is the movement in a more sustainable future. Both we are well positioned. And for us, regarding the results, it's actually an on own steam, the efficiency program, the operational excellence improvement that all puts together quite a good EBITDA development. Any pressure from the shareholders about free cash flow, though, as well? I noticed that it's going to be forecast to be between 50 and 80 million euros uh, compared with 136 million last year. And, and obviously, the efficiency program is the culprit here on that one as well. But it will limit your ability to return money to shareholders in one way or other as well. But the shareholders are getting it, are they, Thomas? I think they get it. And we are very transparent in it. And actually, Bilfinger is a cash engine if we are a normal operation. The efficiency program is necessary to prepare the company for the future. And we are very well on the way. When you say you think they get it, is that because the mix of shareholders, Thomas, is a little bit different from the traditional mix? And there was a great piece I was reading at the start of last month that was talking about actually 42% of your ownership now is hedge fund investors. Um, it's a different kind of class of shareholder than, than perhaps you'd want for the bulk of your shareholding. Yeah, at first, it is important to see that we are, of, of course, acting in North America, Middle East and in Europe, and we are an indicator for the industry. So there is a big interest all over 
into us to look how we perform because we are seen like a barometer for the industry. Then if it comes to the spread of the different shareholders, yeah, that's up to the interest of the different groups. There's not so much from our input. Thomas, it's Karen jumping in. Let me get to that uh, cash flow number. The, the free cash flow is still negative, uh, minus 46 million euros. This is uh, related to the high net capital expenditures. Just run us through that spending program again and when you might see that start to just filter out of the numbers. Yeah. At first, this what you see with the cash flow is a general behaviour, a seasonality within the Billfinger figures. This is born out of the way how we do the business. We are working on that to flatten that more out and even that more out over the year. I think we did some progress, but we are not there where we want to go. But as you saw in the Billfinger figures, it's the fourth quarter delivering actually a good finishing to the year. If we then look into that what we see as a business in front of us, there is labor shortage. There is a lot or a high degree of uncertainty certainty in the industry, how it will go on in the next few years, and both of that together with the sustainability improvement, what they are all looking into, is a good mix for us. Can you just talk us through the labour side where you've touched on it? You had some industrial action also to weather in the first half of the year. We know that labour markets are tight. How would you describe what you're watching at this point? Is there any hope that some of that uh, pressure is coming out of the, the wage cycle at this stage? No, we don't think so. It's actually not only the demand for labor in general, it's actually demand for expert expertise labor, people with a high level of knowledge. And you remember in the efficiency program, we said one quarter of the savings, roughly 13 million euro, we will put purely into education and training of our own staff. Expertise will be the, one of the differentiators for the future. We do our homework in that. On the other side, when we look into the different industries, there is a big labor shortage and we don't see that this is going away in the next few years. Thomas, can I get into the restructuring of the US market as well? I mean, this is meant to be one of the markets that's at the forefront of energy transition. What restructuring is exactly taking place there and how would you describe the health of that uh, transition that's taking place? At first, we are well on the way with the transition. What we get rid of is the old construction business. Our business in efficiency and sustainability in North America is working actually very well and profitable. But we have to face out this old large project business. And that is a painful exercise for this year. And when you look into the order intake as an example, how painful it is, we have in technology a growth of more than 30%. In Europe, a growth of 6%. In US, minus 23%. And when we look into the three businesses, what we have there, the two general business with maintenance and turnaround, and the other one with the construction part, the construction part is the one which pulls it down completely. Because we phase it out, we shut it down, we stop it. Final one from me, Thomas, on the broader trends. Uh, and I noticed your, your comments are, we've always been clear at Billfinger, we're not going to wait and see how external influences play out. You're going to be at the forefront of this as well. In terms of the mix between the newer energies that you and Karen were just referring to and indeed the older industries as well, the old oil and gas industries, are you seeing a meaningful shift in your business mix? And you mentioned, of course, about the oil field construction businesses that as well. But I mean, what I see is from the IEA at the tail end of last week is as much demand for oil and gas as ever, if not more than ever. So I'm still concerned about seeing when and how the, 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 the transition is playing out. Yeah, don't be concerned. At first, the impression that 
the believe the world believes that we all move now in complete new green technology is wrong. The majority of the business, more than 90%, is actually to improve existing industry and getting it more efficient and more sustainable. Less than 10% is really new technology. That's the fact. So our main work is on existing assets to improve them, to make them more sustainable. Then regarding the oil and gas, yes, it's true. Oil and gas is booming and it looks good in that sector too. But don't forget, please, that all the big oil and gas companies are investing a lot of money into green things like hydrogen, carbon capture, getting electrified and so on. They all do their homework in the direction of the sustainability too. To finalize it, actually, it is like that, that the majority by far of the investment is on existing technology to improve them. The impression that everyone is now going into complete new technology is simply wrong. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.